Super Talk Mississippi media production. In the Mississippi Legislature, House Bill 728 funds health care for illegal immigrants. Call your legislator today at 601-359-3770. Ask them to stop House Bill 728. It's not too late. You can help stop this. Paid for by Building America's Future. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Okay, following is the list of everyone who is not going to run for president on the Democrat ticket because the rumor is Joe Biden is maybe thinking about not. So, have you seen the potential field? Yeah. It, like, takes three screens <laughs> to put them all up there. Who's not running? Oh, my gosh. It's a collection of wannabes, I think it's easy to say. So there are some doubts. Doubts that he's going to run now. Folks, if you haven't seen it, Rhino shared it with me, and it's it's been propagated on a rather viral basis, the president seems to struggle a bit. And again, I'm not ridiculing or mocking him. I'm questioning his fitness to serve as commander-in-chief. That's a valid, legitimate question. Despite what Goofy Jeff said to us yesterday, um, he had trouble traversing the steps of Air Force One once again. Correct? Oh, yeah. He was making it up. The Air Force One steps, I believe that was him leaving Poland after taking the train back. Right. And he got about three quarters of the way up and missed a step. Had to go to all fours and crawled back up to his feet and went in the door. It's a good idea, honestly, for him to figure out some other way to get on that plane, maybe without cameras all around. I mean, you take any of the politics out of it, take any political bias we might have, and look at it from the 30,000-foot view Yeah, as an elderly gentleman in a position where he might not still be able to do what he once was able to do. And everyone, as they age, has to learn their limitations. You're not a spring chicken anymore, President Biden. Maybe quit trying to trot up the steps and be a little more methodical. That's true. It, it you know, and this, and I noticed this particular set of steps. I mean, the mobile steps that are pushed up to the door at, in Air Force One, and it, which is up there about three stories, I would say. These particular steps, if you noticed, have a break in them, a landing. The ones I noticed yesterday, and it looked like it was when he was ascending to the landing after the first step. 
set of steps, pardon me, is when he, he stumbled, he fell. And they're also not very steep. I mean, it looks more like a 45-degree as opposed to like a 60-degree. Yeah, they're definitely not the steepest airline steps you could get. Yeah. They're, and not, they're not as steep as the the truck that they pull up to the side of some planes. Agree. And that's because of the landing. I think the brake in them uh, tends to spread them out a bit. But, gosh, he needed to come up with something. Doesn't... And he just had an exam, right, last week. Clear to go. But he probably, you're right, somebody should advise him. And that may be picked up as well by detractors that put a foot on there, get to the next step, bring the other foot up, instead of alternating. Because that's what it looks like. It, and it wouldn't be any big deal had it not been this is the second time we've seen this. But the voters are to blame, right? Uh, at the end of the day, he got the votes, he got elected. Some would contest, of course, even that. But he the man. But there's some buzz going around. You've seen it, I'm sure, that maybe he won't run. After not so long ago saying, I'm in. And, of course, you got a slew of eager Democrats waiting to step in. J.B. Pritzker. One. Who? <laughs> That's exactly right. Who the hell's that? He would be the governor of the great state of Illinois. He was one. Buddy Sanders, your man. What do you say about him? I'm Buddy Sanders. Give me all your money. <laughs> I sound like a cartoon artwork. <laughs> and our favorite governor among the Democrat crop, Gretchen Whitmer, of the Great Lakes state of Michigan. You know she is just, she's eager <laughs> to be on that stage campaigning, debating for president. Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, she already ran once. And she's doing better than the person sitting in the vice president seat right now. True. She would have been a better pick. She was in the field to be on the ticket. Gavin Newsom, no secret there. He says he's not. He's worried about California. Yeah, and DeSantis says he's not. He's worried about Florida. We'll yeah. see which one of those is telling the truth. <laughs> Jared Polis, you know who that is? I that name rings a bell, but no, not really. Not enough to vote. Governor of the Rocky Mountain state of Colorado. Ah. Of course... Kamala Harris. I don't think giggles will get past Iowa. <laughs> Another one you may uh, also not be surprised at. Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> Pistol Pete. Did you see it? Good that? luck with that. <laughs> he was uh, on location in Ohio yesterday, finally, with the hard hat on. Well, I mean, as much as they badmouthed Trump, he beat them all there. <laughs> So they had to send somebody, or it would have been even worse, even more embarrassing for the left. And so once again, you, you have to give credit to Trump. He was more in tune with what the heck's going on on the ground there with the townspeople. He shows up, he's visiting with them, chatting with them, and provides water. Right? That's what he did yesterday. Meanwhile, DeWine's over there drinking the 
sludgy tap water. I don't be. even know if drinking is the, the right kind of sipping, <laughs> at dipping best. his tongue into it. At best, he was sipping it. Because the more I watch that video, there's I don't know which one's which, but there's definitely a hole. I sloshed it in my mouth, and then it went back in the glass, and this big dramatic, and it didn't look like you took a drink at all. Yeah. I agree. Also mentioned in the, uh, in the lot of potential candidates... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you knew that was coming. She's up in there. And there's a bunch more. I, really, it was, I, I exaggerated when I said three screens, but when I saw it this morning very early, amid uh, the news that Joe Biden is hmm, maybe not for sure running, it was a screen that had three rows of what looked like 10 or 12 in each row. So it's, uh, and of course you would expect that if the seat is vacated. Meanwhile, the Democrat support for Joe Biden, it has risen, which is shocking to me. Republicans grow skeptical of Donald Trump. At this point, on the Republican side, it's Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and most recently, this uh, couple of days ago, Vivek Ramaswamy. Makes more sense than anybody, honestly. And then Tim Scott is making the rounds. Looks like he's likely to jump in the race. I will say that he's an excellent speaker, honestly. And I've heard kind of mixed reports on his effectiveness as a senator. But no doubt, he's a good speaker. And he's a good in that he just speaks common sense. You know, he doesn't go off with all the platitudes. He doesn't go off into the weeds. He said, and of course, he's, he is another who believes that this whole CRT, DEI industry that has cropped up, constantly suggesting that this country is institutionally racist, he just uh, he denies that and very effectively refutes it, I believe. He said in a speech yesterday, an African-American in this country can rise to the highest office in the land, be president, twice, can quarterback in the Super Bowl, can be the Secretary of State of this nation. But what they can't be is a black conservative which describes him. I thought that was pretty much on point. You've got Representative Byron Donalds, a black man from Florida, fantastic rep, by the way, Republican, who's not allowed in the black caucus because he's conservative. Hmm. Such a double standard of how they apply the what you are, who you are stuff. Coming right back on Middays, Christopher Green at 11.05 from Ole Miss and the Attorney General of Mississippi, Lynn Fitch, at 12.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. 
That's when David Bowie was at the height of his triangular look. <laughs> Everything was a triangle, just stacked on top of each other. He had the Joan Crawford jacket. The shoulders were out about three feet. <laughs> you know, he was regularly listed as one of the top-dressed men. Back then, they actually divided up between men and women. <laughs> and by the way, you know, you and I talked about this. They didn't click carry their clothes around <laughs> like we saw. What was that beauty show or not? Uh, uh, wardrobe show, whatever you call it. Yeah, it, it was a fashion, fashion show. show. Fashion they were show, on the yeah. catwalk and had all the dresses <laughs> cattywampus. They were, <laughs> they were carrying, <laughs> carrying them around. Unbelievable. Or what's-his-face that did the quote-unquote satanic ritual at the Grammys, showing up to another award ceremony in a latex outfit that looked like he'd been eating some beans before he put it on because it was all inflated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but when they came out on the walk there, as they do, with all the press oohing and on and taking pictures and recording it, and they come out and they're carrying their clothes. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's a hold-my-beer deal there, isn't it? For somebody. I guess. I can't wrap my head around, quote-unquote, high fashion, because you never see it. It never makes its way to the everyday average person walking down the street. It's just all these weird people <laughs> that spend their entire life doodling. <laughs> that seems to be the case. Oh, well little fodder there about the great David Bowie. Today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with two-time national champ and former NFL player Christian Miller. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Supertalk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm, and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So the market's down today a bit. The Dow down 84. In pre-market, it was up. So here's what happened today, folks, in the economic world. The GDP numbers came in a bit lower than expected. Came in at 2.7%. The expectation was 2.9%. And so, honestly, these days, I can't tell how the market might digest and react to that. Because good news is bad news situation when you have an aggressive interest rate environment. So, the coming in at, at uh, below expectations foretells of a slowing economy, which isn't very good news, but it maybe gives a little leeway to the Fed to uh, be less aggressive in their interest rate policy. It's, it's just not, it's hard to tell. At this point, I think the market, which is the reason why we had a sell-off, is expecting that the next Fed action would be an increase of the Fed funds rate by half a point, as opposed to what was earlier expected at the start of the year to be two consecutive quarter-point increases. We already got one quarter last month. Now they're thinking next month we're going to get a half 
because we can't get that sticky inflation to go away. That's the fundamental problem. Joe Biden, of course, says that everything's just hunky-dory. Good times, baby, because of my policies. Except I don't think that corresponds with reality. It's kind of like this whole gender stuff. It's, it conflicts with reality. So we might have some sound here. We got that? Um, I can't remember if I sent that to you or not. And it was a hearing yesterday in Arkansas. And uh, we'll see if we get that teed up later. But the bottom line is, to set it up for you, is there was a senator in the state of Arkansas that was questioning a transgender individual, an adult. And, and this is because Arkansas is considering legislation as we have in Mississippi, which would prohibit gender reassignment surgery for minors. By the way, that bill called the REPAC in Mississippi passed the House, was transmitted to the Senate on Tuesday, passed the Senate to the chagrin of many, and is headed to the governor's desk Well, where I expect it would be signed. The governor has indicated he would sign it. Again, this only impacts children, and there presently is no gender reassignment surgery available in the state of Mississippi. There's some other treatments available for minors experiencing so-called gender dysphoria. But in Arkansas, they're debating it, and they had someone show up there. We got some? Yeah, it was a pharmacist that was discussing it. And this, by the way, this is, I think I got this right, Rhino, this is a, a biological male who has now transitioned to a female certainly identifies as a female, a female, and is, appears as a female. I, gosh, I don't even know if you can say that anymore, right? But it certainly does to me. And this is what my point is. Your eyes, your human senses do not lie. And all this crap conflicts with that. Take a listen. Senator McKee, you're recognized. Are you telling us that you're unfamiliar with a large body of medical evidence of the harm that is come upon people that have gone through these processes? I'm familiar with a large body of evidence that shows that providing good affirming care saves lives. Are you saying that you're unaware of the large body of medical evidence of the harm that has come upon these people in these processes that have been gone through? Will, Are you unaware of that body of evidence? I will repeat what I just said. Are you unaware of that body of evidence? I will repeat what I just said. You said that you're a trans woman. A trans female, yes, ma'am, sir. Do you have a penis? That's horrible. Yeah. You're the one. You're the one that brought that into the discussion. I never that that said anything about genitalia. Oh, it has everything to okay. do with genitalia. I don't know Audience. what my rights are Audience. right now. Audience, if you want to stay in here. I don't know what my rights but are, but that question was highly inappropriate. To, you do not have to answer any question. If you if you're through, we'll dismiss you. I'm not through with questions, but I'm not going to answer that question. That's okay. highly inappropriate. Again, that I, you can say that and, and that you're, you're right. So. Okay. Are I'm a healthcare other, professional, a doctor. Please treat me as such. Next there, question, please. Are there any other questions? How about that? Do you have a penis? 
does is it just me or does that not seem 100% appropriate? Because seems it, to be at the heart of the matter. It's another example of we can't agree on how many biological genders there are. Not it's how many when can you be get identified. down to the nitty gritty, you have the chorus of Karens that will come out with the <laughs> shame, and they did, and they did, as you can tell. You, and so you can see, by the way, when you were watching it, you can see those that are seated behind her, him, her, I'm going to call it him. Wearing the typical uniform. Right, exactly. Bangs and power glasses. Yes, and exactly. piercings. <laughs> power glasses. <laughs> Brado pointed that out to me yesterday after the show, folks. You recall a couple of days ago, was it, or maybe it was yesterday, we played the teacher who has uh, instituted a communist lunch <laughs> In her school, at her class, I guess. And he, and he pointed out that it seems like all these people wear these power glasses. And they were. They're like twice as big as her head, it seemed like. And they're like aqua-colored and big old glasses. <laughs> these people spend their entire life trying to be unique and different. <laughs> yet they all wind up looking the exact same. <laughs> That is so true. You could, you're right. So they don't want us to stereotype them or profile them, but they all make themselves look the same. That's so why I call it the uniform. It, it does, and everybody sitting behind this male who is identified as a female. That's the first dress question. Up. <laughs> exactly. First question the senator asked, right? Yes, I'm a transgender female. <laughs> so proud of it. Hey, look, you're an adult again. Knock yourself out. I don't care. We're talking about we're talking about minors here. That's why the question was relevant. We're talking about mutilating the bodies of innocent children that aren't qualified to make that decision as to whether or not their body should be mutilated either with surgery or drug treatments, much of which, if not all of which, is irreversible and comes with it long-term consequences. We're taking a break here on the middays for some messages. We're in the Element Well Studios. Mississippi. Days with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us into this segment. What a great group. We need to play He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. It's a good tune by the Hollies. So, you've probably seen that Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from the great state of Georgia, 
has called for a, quote, national divorce of red and blue states. Reading from her Twitter account a couple of days ago, we need a national divorce, says Congresswoman Green. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. From the sick and the disgusting issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. Well, that got the, the folks over at The View, the panel, all fired up. They got into a rather tense debate over the prospect of a national divorce. The conservative member of the VIEW panel, Alyssa Farah Griffin, suggested to her co-hosts that Green is, quote, easy to make fun of, end quote, but urged them to recognize the congresswoman's, quote, dangerous potential. But here's what I want to get to. Sonny Hostin, you know who she is, one of the members of the VIEW? A far-left loon, honestly. She suggested that Griffin, her co-host, compadre, the uh, conservative member, was propping up a theory rooted in misinformation, noting that blue states, I'm quoting here, are the ones that subsidize the red state. Well, Let's parse that out a little bit, because now we're talking math. First, the fact is, every state in this country relies on federal funds. That's just a fact. Every state does. No state could exist independently from a financial perspective without the federal government, as it currently stands. Now, let me be a little more specific there. The complexion of that state, a state should it secede, would change rather dramatically. It is absolutely true that seven of the ten states most dependent on the federal government are red states. And how that's measured, just so you'll know, it's a ratio of the amount sent to the federal government in the form of income taxes, federal income taxes specifically, compared to the amount received from the federal government. Mississippi, the most dependent. In terms of the amount Mississippians send to Washington in the form of income taxes and the amount received from Washington. And, and that stands to reason it's a function of, again, having the lowest per capita income, the lowest median household income, largest percentage. So even though we have not expanded Medicaid, which by the way, is a, the reason I bring that up is because of the money we receive from the federal government, the biggest pot individually of, of uh, a, a, an area, a realm, is Medicaid, program, Medicaid. It's about $5.2 billion a year from the federal government through the what's called the FMAP, FMAP, 
federal medical assistant percentage. Ours is the highest because it's calculated based on per capita income. You have the lowest per capita income, you get the most support from the federal government to run Medicaid. That's the way it works. And then, of course, the, sh- the state kicks in its share, which would be the remainder. So that's a big chunk of money that comes our way uh, in the form of Medicaid, uh, the federal match to Medicaid. Big, big junk, uh, big collection of money. So, actually, it's 72.6% to be exact, and in the last couple of years, it's been hovering around 80% because of the enhanced uh, FMAP uh, that was signed into law by Donald Trump in March of 2020. That has continued as long as we are under the public health emergency, which ends at the end of March. And at that point, the enhanced FMAP of 6.2% to the states begins to decline. It phases out through September. We'll be back to our normal 72.6%, and that will, in fact, reduce the amount of money we receive from the federal government substantially to run that program. On the other hand, the state at that point does not have to adhere to what's called the continuous enrollment provision, which is what the states had to do in exchange for receiving the increase revenue from funding from the federal government. All that really means is that you can't kick anybody off, even if they're ineligible, which is why our our Medicaid rolls have grown dramatically, nearly 100,000. Since uh, the passing of that, the enacting of that law in 2020, the Families First Coronavirus Act is what it was called. That preceded the CARES Act by about a month, signed in 2020. So at the end of March, states will be allowed to check their roles and disenroll anyone no longer eligible but receiving benefits. And if the states don't do that, that means they're absorbing those costs without the additional support from the federal government. That's a problem. And I think you're going to see an outcry across the country, because it is estimated some 20 million people are going to be kicked off the Medicaid rolls because they're not eligible. It's the way it works. In Mississippi, it's probably... 120,000? That's going to be interesting to observe. We'll see where that goes, but that's set. And it's unless the president changes heart and says, nope, we're going to extend that public health emergency again, I just don't see that happening at this point. I think that's set in stone. But Joy Bahar is wrong in saying that. Yeah, seven of the ten states most dependent on the federal government are red states. That's absolutely true. What she fails to mention is that the blue states can't make it either without the federal government. California and New York can't either. Massachusetts, Connecticut, all of which have the highest per capita income, they can't make it either. And where does all that money come from? We just print it out of thin air. That's why we got $31 trillion in debt. So she fails to acknowledge that fact. 
None of them can be weaned off the federal largesse and, and exist, survive financially as they currently are operating. It would be a completely different landscape. You could imagine in Mississippi, for example, and I've asked this question because uh, it's a valid question, I believe, with respect to Medicaid expansion. Should we not exit based Medicaid since we are not in favor of expanding it? And all expanding it means is adding one coverage group out of five available. We currently do cover four of the five available coverage groups. Base Medicaid does that. Expansion would add another coverage group. But should we exit? I'd like to know Thomas and Greenwood's take on that. Should we exit base Medicaid? Which would mean, of course, 720,000 people in Mississippi, including 400,000 kids, would no longer receive free health care, wouldn't have Medicaid, which is free, free program. No premiums, no deductibles, no out-of-pocket. Of course, services are only available from providers in hospitals, clinics who accept Medicaid. All don't. Most don't, honestly. Hospitals, yes, but... Clinics, a little bit more difficult task. Specialty clinics in particular, specialty practices, generally speaking, don't accept Medicaid. But it's a legitimate question uh, to exit base Medicaid. It saved the state about a billion dollars a year, by the way, of state funding that we match with the federal to operate the program. About 25% of our population would be uninsured at that point. Coming right back with Mountain bumping us out of this segment. And we got Chris Green, the professor from Ole Miss at 1105. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Conversation on the ceasefire text line 601-879-4395 and go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Uh, we probably should just replace that with let them help you figure out this kangaroo <laughs> because that's what the heck's going on. I don't like it. Despite what Jeff said yesterday, oh, yeah, you're giddy when the market goes down because it reflects on Joe Biden. No, I'm not. I'm pissed again because it's down, by the way. And I did misspeak a little bit, or I just want to correct something, clarify something. The GDP numbers were a revision to the fourth quarter. I don't think I said that. We don't have uh, first quarter yet. We don't have first quarter yet 
uh, that won't be out until the first quarter's over. So we still got another month in that. But we revised, uh, did the Bureau of Labor Statistics, revised the, the estimate lower to 2.7%, which indicates the market or to the market that the economy is slowing. There's always a revision. It's crazy. We have these numbers come out, and then you see a market reaction, and then inevitably, after more data is accumulated and collected and analyzed, six weeks later, they revise it. And that's exactly what happened here. Also, the core PCE, that's personal consumption expenditures, it's, it's widely considered to be a better measurement of inflation than the CPI. It, too, was revised. Uh, 4.3% versus 3.9%. Actually, that's a current number. My bad. That's a current number. The the um, GDP, a revision to the fourth quarter. The PCE, I misspoke. That's current. 4.3% versus 3.9% expected. And that's why we're mainly seeing a market sell-off, because that indicates inflation is still raging on. It was 4.7% last month. Also, U.S. housing, weak mortgage demand following weak sales. No surprise there. The purchase index down 18%. Biggest drop in the purchase of U.S. homes since 2015. So all this is being digested by investors is a bad sign for the economy in the offing. I think we're going to see a fairly serious recession in the third and fourth quarter. That's my position right now, based on the latest data. And in this case, I think we will see more job losses, especially when you look at the housing industry like that. It affects so much uh, from a jobs perspective, construction, all the materials used in the construction of, of homes, all of that demand starts to dwindle and decline, and, and these companies got to do something. Something else I noted, Rhino, that I think is a positive thing, and I know it's shocking, a lot of these companies are they're reducing their workforces in their DEI departments. Imagine that. You've seen that? Even Amazon says, yeah, we got to let some of these people go. Got to lose the dead weight. Yeah. How about that? All these jobs are on the chopping block in the recent spat of corporate layoffs. 600 companies laid off a bunch of DEI workers. Will you please tell me what they're doing? What are they doing? Seriously, what are they doing? You mean the companies or the workers? The workers. Oh, they're just putting their boots on ready to go be activists in some pissed-off parade. <laughs> they'll find some cause to go champion Amazon let go excuse me of uh, 16 Twitter released 7 Nike 5 Comcast 4 and there are a whole bunch of others as well not listed so you mean they're finally figuring out hmm this isn't helping us this may look good we're just good corporate social activists and we're just fully embracing the social activist message of the day. But, hmm, 
our our financials don't look too good here. We got to shed some costs. We're not getting a lot of out of that out of that group. Imagine that. They finally figured that out. Could they see this coming? But you know, it's it's like I said, when times are good and you're flush with cash and profits, oh, you feel good about all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you look at those financial statements and you say, okay, we got to get serious here. You know, we're a for-profit business and a lot of people's livelihoods depend on us making a profit, not being a social justice warrior. That doesn't produce profit. The left hates that. Social justice, that's more important than profit. You always hear that refrain, people over profit. No profit, no people. <laughs> I'm watching Pete Buttigieg answering some questions in Ohio. We're coming right back with Chris Green from Ole Miss Law School. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply. To think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back everyone, hour two of midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, Christopher Green, law professor at the University of Mississippi Law School. Good to see you there, Professor. Good to see you. Uh, looks like I'm labeled as Lynn Fitch on the video, but oh, we got yeah, there we go. We got back to me. <laughs> yeah, she's coming on at 12:05. We just made you the Attorney General for a brief moment there. Yeah, I didn't use my power. I had it for just a second, and I, I if, I'd been, if I'd known it was coming, I could have used my power uh, for for good. But I didn't. I didn't use it for evil. <laughs> All right, we wanted to discuss with you today this uh, this case buck versus reeves the the us supreme court this week uh decided not to hear this case concerning the uh redistricting process the most recent of mississippi's congressional districts uh the tell us about i guess the the thesis of the case what the plaintiffs alleged uh and give us some background on that please yeah, so this is this has got some background, background, background. <laughs> so uh, back in 2000, we had a federal lawsuit. Um, so both in 2000 and in 2010, the legislature uh, does not redistrict. Okay, so in 2000, we lost a congressional seat that was very, very important uh, that we uh, that we come up with something because we've got to decide. Uh, you know, you, we don't have any four district. Uh, maps. Right. Uh, in 2010, they had some four district maps, but they were malapportioned because of population changes. So basically what they, so in 2000, the court comes in and redistricts. They come up to the Supreme Court and uh, the uh, Supreme Court in 2003 in this Branch versus Smith case says that was an okay thing to do. You can draw the districts. You don't have to do at large. Um, then in 2010, the legislature doesn't redistrict. So that same case, they came back to that same case and said, okay, modify the injunction uh, to account for population changes, uh, uh, shifts among the among the districts. Uh, 
Then in 2020, uh, well, we have the, uh, the the census of 2020, but then in 2022, the legislature does redistrict. Right. Okay, so we have some plaintiffs who have some uh, claims under uh, the Voting Rights Act. So obviously, there's there's claims about one person, one vote. The 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 old districts uh, couldn't have couldn't have worked, mm-hmm. um, uh, and we have a legislative district as well. So uh, basically, what the court did is say we're going to dissolve our earlier order telling the state to have these four districts that made sense in 2010. The plaintiffs, so the the people challenging the new legislative maps, they said, we want you, this court, now to consider claims of racial gerrymandering saying that there should have been uh, a different uh, arrangement of uh, African-American voters, that's the chief thing they're, they're concerned about. So we got Betty Thompson's district, uh, which is uh, 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 has enough African-American voting population to, to elect him, but they wanted uh, a, a somewhat different arrangement that would make it uh, perhaps more likely to have influence on a, on a different, different district. So a bunch of complicated claims specifically about this map. These plaintiffs wanted the, the same court to be uh, uh, doing it so that the remedy would be just a tweak of the 2010 maps. Hmm. Basically, what the court said, uh, the three-judge court said, well, we're going to dissolve our, our order. The legislature has uh, has their new maps. If you want to challenge that map in a, in a separate lawsuit, you can do that, but uh, you can't do it uh, just as a, a way of trying to get the map back to as close as possible to 2010. So essentially what the lawsuit was about, what the issue was about was, are the claims of racial gerrymandering uh, uh, taking place against a backdrop, a, a baseline of, cons- of a comparison of the 2010 maps uh, that the court did, uh, or uh, are they gonna have to prove a racial gerrymandering uh, claim kind of based on what the legislature did themselves. So it was clear that the challenge was, it was clear in the you know early 2022 that they, they weren't going to resolve things in time to affect the 2022 uh, uh, congressional elections. Um, it is going to have to be a separate lawsuit. There's, I, I would think, plenty of time to have a separate lawsuit channel, making these same claims uh, in time for the 2024 elections. Um, but, it, but basically what, what this uh, decision, uh, the upshot is, that uh, uh, claim is going to have to be uh, considered uh, in a different uh, lawsuit. Uh, hmm. So it's not going to have the 2010 maps necessarily as the baseline of comparison. So, uh, oh, my God, I could have I given, given so much more additional boring detail. Well, is it, but is this the reason, Professor, is this the reason what you just said concerning the 2010 maps, is that the reason the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to take this thing up? Well, I mean, what's, what's their basis for Well, that? so the reason they decided to not to take it up is they, so uh, uh, the, the, the state came in and the Mississippi Republican Party, uh, they, they both said, well, what you should do is dismiss this appeal for lack of appellate jurisdiction. So this is three judges. This is Judge Jolly and two district judges, uh, Judge Bramlett and Judge Wingate. Um, And it goes straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, And they said, well, first thing, you should dismiss this because this isn't uh, the right time to hear this appeal because you don't have uh, jurisdiction over an appeal from a uh, dissolution of an injunction. 
in, in the alternative, you should just summarily affirm to look at what they did and say, yeah, they, they got it right. What the U.S. Supreme Court did was uh, dismiss the appeal. Okay. So they said, uh, we're, we're agreeing with the argument that they don't have jurisdiction. The argument, uh, that argument was based on the list of words in uh, the jurisdictional statute uh, for these three-judge courts. So there's a difference. So ordinarily, when you come into to a, a trial court and say, hey, I want, a district, I want an injunction, I want a different injunction, I, uh, you know, they, and they say no, in an ordinary case, whereas with a single district judge, you can go straight up to the Fifth Circuit under 1292. But there's different rules about when you can immediately go up to the U.S. Supreme Court from a three-judge court, in part because they don't want people just immediately running to the U.S. Supreme Court all the time uh, in these three-judge uh, court cases. So it really turns on, you know, just really, really technical language in the jurisdictional statute. Um, so I, I, there, uh, there was a suggestion. I, th I don't think it's there's. I don't think it's it's available now, but there was a suggestion uh, that they could uh, take an appeal to the hmm. Fifth Circuit from this this uh, three judge court. But I'm not I'm not sure if if the plaintiffs are planning to planning to do that. Just starting over with a new lawsuit and saying, hey, look, we think this is a racial gerrymander for X, Y, and Z. Um, maybe try, you know trying to give up any any particular uh, salience for the 2010 baseline because it's the court that actually picked those lines. We got a couple uh, they minutes. They might be maybe doing that. We but. got a couple of minutes left and, and and this may be a question you can't answer in 2 minutes but essentially what my understanding is professor the plaintiffs are saying is we got uh, the highest per capita um, composition of uh, of uh, minorities black people right in in of all the 50 states. We, we've got the highest percentage of our total population is represented by black people, but yet our congressional districts don't reflect that. Only one has more black people voters uh, than of, of the four that we have. And so what they're maintaining, I believe, is yeah, that, that's so unfair. Is that essentially right? Yeah, that's the claim. Okay. And the Supreme Court did not say that they disagree with that claim. Uh, what they what they said this week was we're not going to hear the case in this setting. So okay. uh, they they might be open to that kind of claim uh, in a future case. They we really don't have any information uh, about you know about uh, the re receptivity of the of the court to to that kind of claim. And actually, the the, the trial the the three judge court here, Judge Bramlett, uh, you know, said you know I think this claim you know might have some some merit in a different posture. Okay. Uh, judge Wingate dissented, so uh, there there's there's definitely some support among uh, among the courts that hey this this claim is worth looking at, just not in this posture. So it sounds like the the case, the concept at least of the argument may have some life left in it. We may see it surface in the form of a new case. I, I would I would be surprised if it didn't uh, okay. uh, resurface because these these claims they get uh, they get litigated uh, endlessly. Yeah, so just looking at the maps of our four congressional districts, District Two, which uh, Representative Benny Thompson uh, hails from, has sixty five point nine percent black population, thirty white. The other three are all just about in uh, opposite in the same amount. So, but yet our state has 38% black population overall. Yeah, so I mean, 30, you know, so, you know, it's, it's about between 25% yeah. and 50%. So yeah. if you had, have, you know, one out of four and two out of four, this is part part of the, the reason that uh, uh, some people are critical of districting. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different mm. 
mechanisms we could do. We could just, you know, have a system where you let everybody in the state cast one ballot and then just take the top four people. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you could you could have uh, give wow. everybody four votes and then uh, take the top top wow. four people. So there's there's a lot of different ways we could do it if we if we got away from doing districts. We'll given keep, the Voting Rights Act, given a long history of districting, we'll keep an eye it's, on it. It's inherently going to be a suboptimal solution. Appreciate it, Professor. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Classic in the cars. <laughs> he wasn't quite as triangular as David Bowie. <laughs> so, just for the benefit of our audience, the four congressional districts, of course, that's what caused problem with the Initiative 65 because the Supreme Court, uh, pardon me, the Constitution still thinks we have five. And that caused a bit of uh, a problem. So 65% white, 28% black, District 1, that would be the seat held by Representative Trent Kelly. And then District 2, which geographically is the largest district in order to get sufficient population, the way our laws work as far as dividing up the nation into House districts. And that district that Benny Thompson represents is 65.9% black. 30% white. And it extends from, gosh, as far north as you can get on the eastern border, uh, what, pardon me, the western border of the state, all the way down to uh, paralleling the river there and extending out a couple of counties to the east, at least, except in the Delta, it's about four or five counties wide, extending from the river to the east, all the way down to the border with Louisiana. It's a big old geographic district. And then three, which is uh, more central and east-central Mississippi, down to the border, and south Mississippi in the central part there, the middle of the state, 58.7% white, 35.6% black, and then District 4, which is uh, looks to be, Rhino, the, maybe the smallest district in terms of the number of counties, District 4. white, 23.4% black. Again, it seems like that the bar to prove racial motivation in drawing these districts would be pretty high. I don't know what the legal standard is for that, but that seems very subjective to me. Because racism is something that yeah, I don't think you'd be able to extrapolate just from the numbers that there was race involved. You'd have to have evidence of some backdoor deal that just happened to be recorded or some email that was... You'd have to have some other evidence to indicate race was the deciding factor because if you just extrapolate the numbers, it's open to interpretation. I agree. I agree. And and this is another situation where 
we have, have gotten to a point in this country where every grievance, every disparity, every imbalance, we just immediately jump to, by default, racism. And unfortunately, it gets a lot of people's attention in power. We never really uh, analyze the nuance of, well, maybe if you look at the crime statistics, for example, the, the uh, incarceration statistics, this one you hear lots of gnashing of teeth and, and enraged people making a big stink about all the time. Because that doesn't correspond with the breakdown of the composition of our population overall. Well, maybe that has to do with who's actually committing the crimes. Maybe when you look at the education statistics and the admissions to, to uh, various colleges and job extensions and, and so forth. Well, maybe it has something to do with uh, issues other than just race and physical traits. But that requires a little little logic, a little analysis, a little nuance. That's just missing. It's devoid in society these days. It doesn't really it doesn't really propel the political boat, does it? Nope. That's easy to get your head. Yeah, racism, that's what it is. And you know what as a result happens? We don't really address the core problem. Because we don't acknowledge what the core problem is. And so, societies actually, those who want to attribute all of those imbalances and disparities to racism, they're actually doing a disservice to the minority populations. The underrepresented, as it is, it is, is uh, termed and described. Because they won't acknowledge the core problem. We just talked about Baltimore, which is like 70%, I believe, black. And the sobering, disturbing statistics about their education, public education. Students can't read, can't write, can't do basic math, like none at their level. Same in some school districts in across Illinois, like 53 school districts, most of which are represented by black students. Well, I don't think racism is at play there. You, you, you'd have to work awfully, awfully hard to to um, make that, approve that, make it, provide empirical evidence that that is the case. And I just don't see that, especially when you consider who runs Baltimore. Mostly black Democrats, right? That's who's in charge. It is the same as the case in so many of these other cities who were failing, and school districts who were failing also under the leadership of their own. Well, let's, let's dig a little deeper and figure out what the core problem is and address it. I'm all for that. But you can't just jump to the conclusion that it's some sort of institutional inherent racism at the core of all these disparities. That won't, won't solve the problem. You may have seen reports, you know, that there's some cities now looking to spend their remaining American Rescue Plan funds, COVID relief funds. Cities as close as Memphis, Tennessee, you see what they want to do with it? Reparations. They want to just cut checks 
cut checks to black people in those cities. With, what does that have to do with COVID? Three years, two years later since the law was enacted, using federal COVID relief funds, which really was a farce, a waste, unnecessary to begin with, I believe a major reason why we're experiencing this uh, inflation that's crushing all of our pocketbooks, they're going to use that for reparations. You're going to see more and more cities now stand up these reparations programs. I don't see anything good coming out of that. And I don't see how that addresses any long-term challenges. It doesn't. I would argue that it simply exacerbates them, extends them for a long period of time. That's not the solution. But I guess it gets you reelected. I don't know how that works. Unbelievable. Carolyn Starkville says they're buying votes with federal dollars. It seems like it. So Thomas um, disagrees with the legislation. Thomas Greenwood does on the ceasefire tax line that would prohibit gender reassignment surgery and I guess other forms of medical treatment concerning a gender for minors, which is what the bill in Mississippi that's headed to the governor's desk would do, says, what other parents' rights do we think we need to let the state disallow? Well, how about killing their kids? You okay with that, Thomas? What other treatment should doctor-patient privacy not apply to? Well, what if a parent said, and this sounds crazy, radical, far-fetched, but I, I think it fits, what if a parent said, you know, my kid's too tall, I'm going to chop their legs off so they'll be shorter, as an example. Is that okay? I mean, you either believe this is mutilating young bodies or you don't. If you don't, and you just think it's necessary medical care and treatment, I would I could get on board with what you're saying, Thomas, but in this case, I, I happen to believe it's child abuse. I do. And I think, unfortunately, our society has gotten to a point where you're put up on a pedestal when you do this. You're lauded. You're worshipped. You're heaped with praise. We talked about this crazy concept a few months ago of love bombing, which we just happened to discover, which is when a child in a school district, I think this was in New Jersey, their policy is if a child starts even halfway talking like they might have a bit of dysphoria, even though you know they stretch the heck out of that, well, then they engage in what they call love bombing, which is just showering this individual, this student, young student, with all sorts of affinity and praise and worship and emails and celebrations and just glorifying it. Oh, I'm so glad, Joe, that you want to be Sally. That's what they're doing. And the parents, by in accordance with their law, are not required to be notified by the school district when this sort of stuff happens. Coming right back with Curtis Mayfield bumping us out here. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for... 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Iconic vocals of Alan Clark in the Hollies there. Thank you for that, Rhino. Little Hollies twin spin. Yeah, man. Ken on the C Spire text line says, put DeSoto in District 2 and then take minority out of current District 2 and spread it out. That would get close to state average in District 1, 3, and 4. It will keep two majority minority and will have Benny Thompson screaming, hell no. Yeah, probably so. I mean, if you drew all the districts to all four to align with our, our population, by broken down by race, all four would likely be in Republican hands. S- speculating, of course. But if you follow that line of reasoning, then, yeah, of course the left would lose their minds. Yeah. And they would say that was racist. Yeah, exactly. David from Bruce reports that uh, FedEx employees can no longer buy stock. So that tells me, David, that they have canceled their employee stock option program or paused it for now. It wouldn't surprise me, given, again, the economic headwinds they and so many other companies are facing, as a, and also as an effort to uh, kind of keep the amount of what's called a float down. Stock float. Keep stock up. Yeah. Can it be argued, though, that you would engender more company loyalty if you're... Well, sure. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole purpose, right? Uh, We had such a plan at my company as well. That's absolutely the whole purpose. And then that's not to be confused, by the way, with stock grants. Options, you have the option to purchase shares, usually uh, at a a discount. And uh, there'd be options to to purchase stock, what are called call options. And then stock grants is when you just give someone – Literally a gift, a, a compensatory gift of stock. I've actually, I, I mean, I'm happy to share this. We've done, we did that in my company to some key, actually a lot of employees, but, and we allocated it based on a lot of factors, including number of years they'd been with the company and so forth. But here's the thing it's taxable. So we'd have to give them cash to pay the tax. Because I didn't want them to endure the tax burden, the way the crap works. Wait for the helicopter money, says William in Greenville. Here it comes. (laughs) That's what they're going to try to do in Memphis and some other cities where there are money. It's just crazy that we have this going on in this country. Unbelievable. The biggest problem facing some of those schools is it was good all-union job teachers, says Neil from Pontotoc. You are forgetting that Thomas doesn't want any government, and he wants to do anything he wants with no consequences, says Mose. Okay, so Thomas says, I misrepresented his position on the transgender, the gender 
reassignment surgery bill, the one that would prohibit such medical procedures on minors in the state of Mississippi. Well, I apologize if I misrepresented it. I'm not sure that I did, though. Um, if I did, I apologize. But what Tom says is a little longer explanation of his position. So if you as a parent had a trans kid and you were convinced they would commit suicide if they didn't get this care, would you get them that care in an attempt to save their life because you love them unconditionally? Do you think the state should be able to tell you, no, you can't save them from themselves? Ultimately, you just take them to another state where it isn't banned and the legislature wasn't so woke by virtue signaling that they weren't woke by passing this ban. I don't really think, I don't really under, uh, pardon me, believe in this case, Thomas, I get what you're saying, that the legislature is, is uh, supporting this legislation to appear anti-woke. I really don't. I do think, in talking to members of the legislature, that they're genuine in their concern. And they've heard lots of uh, arguments in opposition of gender reassignment surgery on minors. There's a mountain, right, of data on medical data we're talking about, and lots of of uh, people who are now adults and uh, did, in fact, have the surgery and now are warning about it, have lifelong health problems. On top of that, Rhino's shaking his head, folks, and he's... Always my go-to on that stuff. I know he tracks it quite a bit. Tom says, why are we wading into this non-issue? Because it's a distraction from the fact that our Republican supermajority is, in fact, not conservative. Well, I guess I would ask Thomas, would you say the same about uh, pro-life statutes? Why are we wading into that? Is that not? I mean, you're making the argument sounding like a pro-choice proponent. It's No, his argument is essentially talking out of both sides of his mouth because he wants, on one hand, the government to do nothing. Just just go up there and collect a check and do nothing. And on the other hand, he wants them to do everything he wants them to do without any nuance or outside influence or any application of game theory. Fair enough. What do you bet that on a daily basis there's a miner somewhere in this country that tells their parents, if you don't buy me something, I'm going to kill myself. Think that happens? Oh, yeah. I mean, with his logic, parents can claim all kinds of rights that are already illegal. Parents could claim the right to not give their kid food, to starve them. Parents could claim the right to chop off a leg. Parents could claim the right to let their toddler ride in the front seat without being restrained. Parents could claim the right that they have the right to tattoo their children. All of these things are already illegal. All these things are already the state taking care of the child in spite of the parents. Right. So Thomas says he doesn't know anybody that's seeking gender-affirming care for their kids. You know, there was a big, uh, big 50 showed up yesterday at the Oxford City Hall. They represented a uh, two groups. Let's see if I can find the two groups. One uh, of those uh, was a campus group at Ole Miss there that was protesting, and the other, let's see, I'm looking at it now, the other group was from Oxford High School. And I'm looking for the name of that organization, because it kind of, yeah, here we go, Oxford High School Gay Straight Alliance. 
University of Mississippi Democrats are, were the other party. It was reported that there's some 50 people that showed up. Fact is, though, Thomas, yeah, people are, there are minors in this country that are having this surgery. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And uh, I, I've looked at a map when I, when I was looking through this a few months ago that showed the number of hospitals, mainly the teaching hospitals is where it's usually found, in this country that if a short five years ago didn't offer such services. No, say it ain't so. Say brain rot hasn't achieved academia. <laughs> I'm afraid it's so, my friend. <laughs> and you look at a present map, and there are dots all over the country. It's everywhere. I mean, it's just case after case of it. So, and, and it's become groovy. I mean, you've explained it perfectly. It's it's, it's a, the newest trend. Yeah. It's the newest emo. It's the newest punk. It's the newest goth. It's the newest grunge. It's the newest way for a disgruntled teen to stick it to their parents. Mommy and Daddy said I was a girl when I was little, so now I'm a boy because I don't like the way my parents disciplined me. <laughs> That's so true. Or on the flip side, you've got parents that are transing their kids so that they can have the newest, neatest toy, so they can brag about it to their other idiot friends. He says, uh, Thomas does, we're, we're in a Republican supermajority. By the way, we do have a supermajority in the House, but Rhino and I did the math on this yesterday. You must have every Republican in the House vote a certain way to achieve supermajority. You can't lose one. Assuming all Democrats vote the other way, whatever a measure might be. So he says, when we legalize weed and ban trans people, but we can't eliminate the income tax or have a ballot initiative process, well, I would just suggest, again, you take that up with the people in the House, and, and now it's kind of um, being informally reported, I would say, not formally reported, not officially reported, that some 10 to 12 Republicans in the House that are not on board with elimination of the income tax. And like I said yesterday, Thomas, I'd go down the list and call every single one of them. I'd start in Trey Lamar's Ways and Means Committee. That's published. That's public information. Who serves on that committee? I'd call every one of them, ask them where they, they stand on that. But I think it's an apples and oranges deal, honestly. You don't, you, you don't um, take no action on good policy because of other policy that you can't pass. That, that wouldn't make sense. If that were the case, we wouldn't do anything, honestly. And then when we come back, uh, I'm going to clarify what I was saying about Medicaid, contrasting Medicaid expansion to, to base Medicaid. We're in the LMOL studios. we got Attorney General Lynn Finch after the news break at the top of the hour. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for.
back in the Element Well Studios. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. What Senate bill and who introduced it to allow UTV and ATV on road trying to follow it? I don't know. Rhino might look that up for us. Jack in Jacktown says, if CCID expands and includes takeover of city utilities, how will this impact Jackson's ability to fund JPD, JFD, etc.? Interesting that this bill passed, but income tax was too controversial. Okay, so let's clarify a couple of things. The CCID bill, or the bill that would expand the CCID, uh, does not address whatsoever the Jackson water system. There's a separate bill out of the Senate for that purpose, to regionalize the water system. And I believe it it, um, provides for a committee that would would, uh, be involved with oversight of the system. Is that the way you understand it, Ryan? Yeah. I know um, Senator uh, David Parker from DeSoto County was on with Paul, I believe, earlier this week discussing that. So that's a completely separate issue there, uh, Jack. And with respect to revenues to the city, uh, nothing changes. Revenues come from uh, city revenues. The vast majority come from sales taxes on sales transacted inside the city limits. The taxes are remitted to the State Department of Revenue, and then based on the the zip code of where the transaction occurred, the Department of Revenue diverts a percentage. I don't remember the exact. I do remember looking it up a few weeks ago and sharing that. But but uh, state keeps it, some of the sales tax revenue, and then the rest, I want to say it's like 18 percent is the number that comes to mind, is what is diverted to the municipalities. That's how they are funded. So this doesn't change any of that, Jack. Income tax being too controversial, the only thing I can say there, folks, is I'm shocked as well, honestly. Last year, some Democrats did support the bill which would have eliminated income taxes. This year, none would get on board, but a few Republicans also peeled off and said they wouldn't support it. Now, maybe it's because there has been um, a fair amount of public outcry at certainly polls if you believe them, have shown that more folks are in favor of eliminating taxes on groceries, sales taxes on groceries, versus eliminating the income tax. Maybe that's what's driving their position on this this matter, on elimination of the income tax. I'm honestly not sure, and I don't don't know how to find out. Um, I also do not believe... Thomas and Greed wants to know why not let it die on the floor. i tell you why, Thomas. I don't think it could get out of committee. Can't get it on the floor without getting it out of committee. Speaking of dying in committee, the question about the ATV bills. Yeah. There were a handful of them addressing the issue of allowing ATV and UTVs on the road. Anything from a certification bill from uh, Representative Bryant Clark all the way to just allowing them to be on rural gravel or paved roads in the county from Senator Suber and Senator Kathy Chisholm. But all of those bills died in committee. Hmm. I know I have problems in my neighborhood with uh, young folks that clearly don't have a driver's license, can barely reach the pedals 
of these vehicles, which go 25, 30 miles an hour, it seems. And I found myself having to dodge them on the streets, especially in the summer, when after um, daylight saving time. Not good. I think it's illegal. And, you know, I've reported it before because it's dangerous. Somebody's going to get hurt, them primarily, and I don't want that to happen. But they're not qualified to drive these vehicles. And honestly, this is on the parents. Where are they? Same old thing. Since when did a sex change operation become gender-affirming care? Well, you could ask the same question about how the pro-choice crowd refers to abortion. That's women's health care. Reproductive care, right? That's how they uh, generally describe it, label it. But I get what you're saying, no doubt. Have you heard anything about shots being fired at a middle school in Jackson? I have not. Witten Middle School, says Dan in Hattiesburg. Gosh, I hope not. Hate to hear stuff like that. Yeah, the only thing I've seen is that there are conflicting reports. I have not seen a concrete report with the actual information yet. Yeah. Uh, Scott and Clinton says, ask Thomas if he has taken his concealed firearm into a concert or a sports venue. Armadillo helmet, hashtag. <laughs> Armadillo helmet. I never heard that one. We are taking a break right here in the Element Well Studios. Fox News, Super Talk News is up next, and then Attorney General Lynn Fitch. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, hour three of the program from the Element Well Studios on this Friday Eve. Joining us now, the Attorney General for the great state of Mississippi, Attorney General Lynn Fitch. General, good to see you, my friend. Hey, Gerard. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me on today. You bet. I know you got a busy schedule. We appreciate you taking some time to join us here on Middays. Wanted to um, discuss with you a new initiative called the Empowerment Projects coming out of your office, uh, recently unveiled. Tell us about that. Well, it's an exciting time and some areas that we should all be focusing on. And it's certainly a direct result of the opportunities that Dobbs gave us to move forward. And they're so impactful to everyone across the state. So it's uh, the Empowerment Project is about a number of different very important uh, areas. First and foremost, talking about um, and then actually putting into action quality, affordable, accessible child care. I mean, we certainly need that in our state. 
um, looking for ways to make that happen. Uh, certainly those uh, children need to be taken care of. They need to be in quality uh, child care facilities. Um, some of the things that we've been doing um, are working certainly with our legislature to increase and expand the tax credit for employers that provide child care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that's a very positive move. Also, Gerard, to authorize a tax credit for certain child care expenses and then also to expand the early learning collaboratives. Again, that is significant because these young children ultimately are going to be us. So what are we doing on the front end right now to get them prepared? And currently in Mississippi, it costs more to send an infant and a toddler to daycare for a year than it does to send one of our students to one of our wonderful um, colleges and universities. So we have to take a hard look at this, and we have to see how we can make a positive difference there. And then when you kind of pivot from that, you look at and you we must work on promoting workplace flexibility. And, and that is so key because, again, our, our young parents are there. They need the, the options, the flexibility. So hand-in-hand hand working with the legislature, we're working on a tax credit for the employers that would provide for paid leave for pregnancy, childbirth, adoption, and foster replacement, um, and then looking at paid maternity leave for employees, for state employees. Um, and then the two, uh, well, actually three other big topic areas are um, streamlining and improving our foster care and adoption systems. I know there's something, you know, I've talked about, too many children are in the system, and we've got to get them to loving homes as quickly as possible. Again, looking at tax credits there, uh, working on a paternity registry, creating a foster parents' bill of rights. Um, and then as we look at another item, it's the enforcement of child support in our state. We've got to look at different ways that we can get um, the, the mothers to receive the dollars from, and it's primarily the custodial parents mm-hmm. uh, receiving monies from the non-custodial parents, which is primarily the fathers. So looking at ways that we can help along there, um, getting child support arrearages to the mother, um, working on helping the fathers, uh, looking at different ways we can provide child support for a child like after they've reached um, a majority uh, and then also for those that have disabilities. And then lastly, I would say the, the big ticket item is how we can support pregnant women. Uh, this is very key to moving forward as we look at how we implement a state program that helps our, uh, our women across our state, how we can provide uh, safe havens, the safe haven boxes and devices so that children can be safely put there. And then, again, as we did in the past, expanding the tax credit for pregnancy centers. So a lot of very, very important, but, again, as I said, very impactful um, areas that we should all focus on. Yeah, sure. Appreciate that, General. Great update. So I know that for the most part, the Department of Human Services is involved in uh, ensuring that uh, child support uh, payments are made and and that those responsible stay out of arrears, and often that involves uh, garnishing their pay and so forth, uh, which requires orders to do that. To what extent, my question is, is the Attorney General's office involved in this enforcement? Well, that, that's a great um, question. So we do some uh, some of that, uh, the criminal, and it's usually referred from Department of Human Services. So, yes, that is absolutely some of our responsibility. Okay. Uh, again, but if you look at it from the, the, the very positive side, Gerard, if, you, if you've got the, 
non-custodial parents, the, the fathers primarily, if they're paying, that means they're investing in their child's life. Sure. And that is such a huge win-win to have that opportunity. Um, and so certainly as we're working hand-in-hand hand with the department, we see some of those really hard cases, and we're very much trying to uh, make a difference. And especially important, is it not general, in a state where, unfortunately, we have uh, a high percentage of babies born out of wedlock. That's true. And, you know, if we um, really enforce our child support and the, the custodial parent knew to expect the dollars, if the, the father understood that he was going to be at least equally responsible, I think that changes the dynamics. Yeah. I mean, if you go in knowing that you, if you have a child that you are going to be responsible because, you know, so for far too long we've seen that the mothers uh, carry the burden of the financial responsibility and the economics uh, hardship for these children. Right. Just no consequences generally. It's, it's, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources to, to run down the deadbeat dads, as they are called, and uh, we just don't have that. Well, we don't. And But I will say that, you know, several years ago I had the um, honor of serving on the Republican Platform Committee, and we actually have that in the Republican platform hmm. right now, hmm. that fathers, both parents, but should be equally responsible for their child until they reach majority. Uh, again, that is the right thing to do. Uh, that would change, like I said, not only our state, but across our country And uh, if we had the enforcement. And again, what an opportunity to have both parents investing in the child. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something that uh, I, I would ask you to elaborate on a bit, and that's this concept of a baby box. I see where uh, I saw yesterday, I believe, the city of Long Beach, if I'm not mistaken, the first in the state to implement. Isn't that exciting? It's incredible. To have that safe haven and to allow a place for a um, precious baby to be placed, to know that it's going to be secure and taken care of. Um, we see too many times where, you know, babies are abandoned, and, and this allows that mother to safely um, have her child put in a, a safe a haven box so that, again, they can be matched up with a, a loving family. So it is, again, an amazing opportunity. Um, that actually happened. There are going to be a number of other locations um, that certainly first responders will be able to get to them. So accessibility is going to happen very quickly and, again, gives them a, a great uh, place to know that they are putting their child and it's gonna, that, that baby's going to be safe. And um, is it true that in Mississippi we do have some sort of a safe haven statute that protects the self-surrender of a baby? Yes, we do. And um, actually, it's in all states, um, okay. again, protecting that child, okay. that baby. And it's, it, what's the time period for that, General? Well, as far time period, uh, you well, know, where you're protected, where the safe haven applies um, between, I guess, the time that you um, self-surrender from the time of birth. Yes. So we, when they are putting the child in, um, then and then when they've uh, been taken over, and so what we would like to see is, you know, it's limited to ninety days. We okay. believe that's a, a okay. great number. Um, again, to make the adjustment, the transition for that, that baby. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to get the point across that you it's not a situation where a mother can just show up and deposit a child that's one year old uh, oh, for this purpose. You're exactly right. 
Um, you know, although, let me say, Gerard, if there is ever a situation and a parent wants to, you know, we'd certainly like to see a child be dropped off to a first responder, sure. a police station, a hospital, uh, anything like that, so that we could all certainly step in and provide the best care and treatment to that child. I absolutely. understand. Uh, totally understand. Well, what about uh, anything else that's happening, General, in the, in the wake of, of the Dobbs case, which, of course... Uh, got escalated to the to the national stage here. Anything else going on in your office related to that? We got a well, break right here. Uh, I'm sorry, Lynn. We got a break right here. Can you hang on through the next? Sure. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. We got Attorney General Lynn Fitch on middays. We'll come back and we'll ask her to discuss uh, what's going on in her office uh, as it relates to the uh, overturn of Roe v. Wade, which originated right here in the state of Mississippi. Stay with us. Well, then you want to be bothered with me hanging around your door, but that's all right. That's all right. That's all right, my mama, anyway, do. stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone, Middays, Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Well Studios. We're visiting with Attorney General of Mississippi, Lynn Fish. So, General, before, before we went to break, I was just uh, wondering what is it's been like around your office uh, since this uh, monumental decision handed down by the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, a decision from 1972. It's certainly got a lot of national attention. How how's it changed the life of you and your staff? <laughs> well, you're exactly right. It's been a monumental decision, certainly for the state of Mississippi, and here we got to champion that. But it's also been so important for our entire country, and we've been working really hard on next steps. You know, we immediately <clears throat> after the decision rolled right into what do we do next. Um, and w- which is in turn what we've been talking about, some of the empowerment project. That certainly was the opportunity that the court gave us to uh, seize the moment and, and really try to empower women and to promote life. Um, and, and most recently, um, we are very in, engaged in trying to extend Medicaid for new mothers for a full year. Look, Gerard, I think that's so important. Um, these mothers are going through a, a, an interesting time. They are totally restructuring their body, being pregnant. And uh, right now there are 35 states that have extended postpartum for an entire year. Uh, we certainly need to do that, too. There are a lot of issues that come up, as we all know, after the birth of a child. Um, and this is very key to helping these women uh, in their next step. Well, in fact, uh, you wrote an opinion piece, which was published here locally, at least in the Clarion Ledger, 
uh, believe it published over the weekend, if I'm not mistaken. I, I read it, and, and you made the, the case for that. Uh, General, have you had any discussions with uh, leadership in the legislature, with the governor, regarding this issue? As you know, the, the bill to do so, to extend postpartum Medicaid to a 12-month period from the present 60-day coverage period, passed the Senate, headed to the House. What do you think? Well, I tell you, it, we've had great feedback. People are very interested in it. Uh, we certainly heard it back and talked to a lot of legislators and doctors and citizens from across the state. Uh, everybody's very invested in this. Again, this is an important step for us. This is an important way to support our mothers. And then as you think about it, too, I mean, we're supporting them. We're helping their children. I mean, it's better for these mothers because this could help them because they might not have a steady income or they might not have the, the family support net um, and they may not have the education or the job skills. And so if they've got this, it can help in and be, provide access and be beneficial for their health care. Again, that is just a tremendous win-win, and we should always step up and do this. Well, um, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the House. I, I don't uh, believe that uh, Speaker of the House Philip Gunn supports this measure. Uh, having passed the Senate. There were a few on the Republican side, and I want to say it was 10 or 11, I believe, that voted against it. I guess we'll just have to see. And I, I have not uh, heard the uh, the governor's position on this as well. Not sure. Well, I'll tell you, um, we have to keep up this dialogue, though, Gerard. That's why it's so important to, to talk about it, to talk about the significance of how this would um, particularly support our mothers and our children. Um, and, again, like I said, there are over 35 states that have already adopted this. Many of those are Republican states. Many of them are our neighbors, like Alabama and um, Tennessee and Louisiana. They're right here because, again, they're in the same situation. They want to be supportive of their mothers and of those children that are coming into the world. And, and as Mississippians, we're very compassionate. We should, too, want to support the mothers and their children. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about uh, related to uh, abortion and access to abortion, as you are uh, likely aware, m many uh, large corporations, uh, several of whom have a significant number of employees here in the state of Mississippi, they have uh, expanded their employee policies to include coverage for an employee to travel from a state that does not allow abortion to a state that does, and they will even fund the procedure itself. Do you feel like that's something maybe the state legislature should act on? Is there a way that they could prohibit a private company? from extending uh, such benefits to those in our state? Well, certainly that came into play. Um, we've seen that come up n numerous times, not only in our state, but in other states with different corporations. Um, but, you know, actually the court said that would be okay. Okay. Um, but th they also said they should cover pregnancy, too. I see. And I think that is extremely important for us to realize that, um, that the, the, the babies should be equally as cared for as well. Well, sure. I, it, uh, I'm a little surprised to hear that that's not included in, in uh, the standard 
minimum benefits that the federal government requires. But yeah, surely makes sense. And we're seeing the states in, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, we're seeing the states really segregate out. I, I noted that in the state of Minnesota, uh, the governor there signed legislature that dramatically increased access to abortion and even uh, disallows or does not require, I should say, teachers from informing or minors from informing their parents if they're going to go submit to this procedure. Something crazy like that that uh, really surprised me. Well, you know, the, and it's, it's it's unfortunate because we're seeing, you know, different organizations, different uh, state governments that, uh, and certainly companies that just are reacting to politics. Yeah. And, and they really should be focusing on the things that are um, moving forward, like the, the maternity leave, uh, the, the child care, things that uh, add up to the whole for all of our respective states. And, and I think people have missed the, the point that, again, we're talking about supporting these women. We're talking about supporting their children because we all want a better future, a better day for our state. Right. Absolutely. What else is happening uh, at the Attorney General's office? And in particular, are there any suits that you're uh, presently heavily involved in that also include other states? Well, we do have a significant number of cases that are going on right now. Um, one that's uh, of importance for all of us um, they are it's involving the uh, insulin manufacturers okay I think that is something that is um, affects all of us everybody in this listening audience either has someone in their family or they have a loved one and no they know someone that has diabetes so we have sued the manufacturers the three manufacturers of insulin and we have also um, the three largest pharmacy benefit managers, and here's why, Gerard, because it costs a thousand percent more now for insulin for consumers to purchase than it did ten years ago. And you know, we've got over a hundred thousand people here in the state of Mississippi that have diabetes, and you know, you just don't live. You have to have insulin. So there is a huge rally across our country, and there are 26 other states that are working with us. We are again leading the. the the cause on this because again it affects so many people and they it they don't have an, an alternative it's not like you can do something different or you can switch to a different drug insulin is what you have to have to live so we we see that as an opportunity again to work with our other states and to bring a good solution where it should not be costly we need to get it down where it's it's affordable insulin and it should be very accessible because right now we're seeing so many people draw that either ration their insulin or they take expired insulin or they don't take it at all and then we see them in our hospitals because now they're in uh, recovery mode right it, what uh, before we go here what specific are you looking to accomplish with that general well the most important issue here is to bring you know down this, the cost. It's a it's a policy change to get the cost down for all Mississippians. Okay. You shouldn't be penalized, and nor should big companies be able to profit off of all of us who you know 
shouldn't be suffering through, you know, paying a thousand percent more for insulin. Um, and the other part is, it, it, if we hold them accountable, it makes these companies be good citizens, which is what they should be, because insulin again is a lifeline. I see. Is there anything that's uh, that's come to your office, General, related to the medical marijuana? situation in Mississippi, of course, that law brand new, just going uh, into production, selling medical cannabis, anything that's come up that you had to address? Well, that's a good question. We're kind of moving into that, but not really, not yet. Um, We, in our office with a number of partners, we have a cannabis working group, so we're always trying to stay on top of the issues, trying to anticipate uh, areas that may uh, need some address for us to address it or do research, so we're, we're working on it, but so far, not really, not many issues. Gotcha. Always enjoy uh, talking to you, General. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. You too. Thank you so much for having me on. You got it. Attorney General Lynn Fitch has been our guest on Middays. We're stepping aside for a break right here, right back in the Element Wealth Studios. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Studios, it is middays on this Friday Eve. So, on the ceasefire text line, I'm not sure who this individual is. Just have a phone number, and that's uh, fine, of course. You don't have to reveal your identity if you don't want to. If you would like for us to refer to you by your name, just tell us that in your text, and we'll update our system to do so. Everything is some kind of giveaway, then attack, or made up by more taxpayers paying. I think I see where you're going there, but uh, I agree. We uh, certainly at the federal level, we dole out lots of money, and uh, we have, I think, divided our nation into two distinct classes: the producer class, taxpaying class, and the recipient class. I think what he's saying is that by eliminating the income tax in the I, Magnolia State, okay, you are benefiting those who work. I see. If you only eliminate the sales tax on groceries, you're helping those who don't pay any taxes. Okay, gotcha. So I think that maybe stemmed from the comment that I made in response to to uh, Thomas's analysis of the current situation that that there was a poll. There's been, I think, a couple done that do show more Mississippians would favor elimination of the grocery tax over the income tax. You've you've seen that. Now, how reliable that is, I don't know. Like all polls, right? It depends on how the questions are asked. Uh, The universe polled the samples themselves, the individuals, 
and how they feel. A lot of factors, so you don't know. But I would say anecdotally that does seem to be a pretty popular thing to do. We're one of a few states that has a sales tax on groceries. That does cause a problem to cities, as we talked about, municipalities, because their revenue is primarily, if not nearly 100%, derived from sales tax diversion, sales tax revenue, and sales taxes. So he, I agree with this person, says, let's give it back to the people who were paying in the form of a, a payroll tax cut. I think maybe what he means there, and I may have misunderstood that, is an income tax, because when I hear payroll taxes, you normally, just to clarify, that includes Social Security and Medicare taxes. Those are broadly, widely, for some time, have been um, uh, defined and referred to as payroll taxes, because they're a percentage of gross pay uh, with, uh, to a certain level, certainly for Social Security, not Medicare, there's no threshold on that, without any deductions, without any other nuances. They're called payroll taxes, have been for quite some time. So I apologize if I misunderstood that, because uh, I, I wrote back and said, so you are you promoting the idea of cutting Social Security and and Medicare taxes. And I was not trying to put words in the individual's mouth. I was just trying to understand what they were talking about. That's fine. So I think we understand now. But I will agree with you, and I know that that a common complaint we heard from the original sales tax elimination bill, which would have increased, uh, pardon me, income tax elimination bill, which would have increased sales taxes. The first bill, the House had um, presented would have uh, eliminated the income tax over a relatively short period of time with some safeguards to ensure that certain revenue targets were made in, in order to move to the next step of elimination as it is phased out over a period of time. It did include offsetting increases in sales taxes. I recall 1.5%. It's the number I remember. Um, and there was a lot of folks that were upset about that, mainly um, or a lot from the uh, retired population in our state who presently pay no income taxes on retirement income. And they perceive this, and they're right, as an increase of their overall tax burden because they don't get a break when we eliminate income taxes. They presently don't pay income taxes. They would, in fact, see an increase in their tax burden in the form of higher sales taxes. Now, the reality is much of what a household spends its money on is not subject to sales tax, such as your mortgage, your rent, um, electricity, gas, gasoline, health care insurance. Go down the list. There's some other things as well. So when you look at what you spend your money on that is subject to sales tax, it's not a lot. And as I recall, the original bill decreased the grocery tax, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. From 7 to 4, seems like. It was either 7 to 4 or 7 to 3. I don't remember offhand. But you recall, I do distinctly, that someone in our audience happens to be the mayor of a town in Mississippi and said that that would be a problem for his municipality because, like we've been discussing, they receive their revenue from sales taxes, and in small towns, lots of times, the grocery stores or grocery sales 
comprise a good portion of overall sales subject to sales taxes, and that would cut into their revenue. Made perfect sense. So the House came back and said, okay, we're going to we're going to tune it a little bit to maybe phase it out over a longer period of time, but reimburse the municipalities. Remember that? For lost oh, yeah. sales tax revenue is a way to get everybody on board. And I think there was something else to help out uh, the retirement income situation as well. So still not there. And it looks like we're not going to get something this year. I would not be surprised. And by the way, I don't have any inside knowledge here, just full disclosure. But I would say I would not be surprised, given the circumstances, election year, etc., that the governor doesn't call a special session to address this issue. Now, here's the risk. You could do that, and unless the votes have been counted, as it is said, behind the scenes, you may call a special session and drill a dry hole, meaning you don't get a bill passed to eliminate the income tax. The governor is, is pretty prudent in those matters. And uh, you remember that he made it clear in the past, whenever there have been discussions about addressing issues in a special session, we're not going to come into Jackson and waste time and money unless we know we can get something done. And I respect him for that. And I think this may be the case as well. Now, could he change some minds? Get that done between now and Election Day? I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him, though. I will say that. He's pretty good at that, and I think he's very passionate about this issue. He's made it clear. He's passionate about this issue. So is the Speaker. So at this point, I did look up, by the way, folks, the members of the House uh, Ways and Means Committee, and it's, it's sizable, as it typically is anytime you have the committee in a governing body like this responsible for for tax matters, or one responsible for spending money, collecting money and spending money. you got ways and means of finance in our state, ways and means of the House, finance in the Senate. They deal with matters of taxation and collecting revenue in general. And then you've got appropriations, which deals with spending money, figuring out how we're going to chop the budget up, spend money. But nonetheless, it's a pretty sizable list there. You saw it, Rhino, that, uh, of course, it's comprised of Republicans uh, and Democrats, so I, I don't know, you know, where are we where are we stand on there. What are all the taxes on cell phone plans? Geez, the list is endless. Great points. At, by, by the way, it's Jerry in Waynesboro. There are lots of taxes, and he's absolutely right. It's not just cell phone, but all telecommunication services. Jerry, this is something I actually have a lot of experience with because. Of, of my background from a business perspective. It stems from the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and that created some funds where taxes levied on telecommunications services went into some buckets administered by a quasi-federal uh, government entity that then allocated that money to schools and libraries. They literally called it the schools and libraries, something or another. SLD, as I recall, was the acronym. To schools and libraries, 
to build out their internet access. Remember the year, 1996. So all of the infrastructure, the cabling, um, the telecommunication services necessary to access the internet, which was a lot more expensive and a lot less pervasive as it is today, it's funded by that. You'll see fees on there called USF, the Universal Services Fund. That's it. That's where that money's going. It's the Schools and Libraries Division. It just hit me. SLD. We did tons of business under that deal because it's a jointly funded program by the school district and the federal government through the SLD where the district has to match funds and it's calculated their matches based on the number of students they have receiving federally subsidized school lunch. That's how it works. You make your application to the SLD, you get stuck in the pecking order based on money, based on the number of your students under federally subsidized school lunch, and the money goes back to you. So in Mississippi, for example, the affluent districts don't get much, if any. The poor districts get a lot. Coming right back on Middays with the final segment. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, that's kind of an appropriate tune for the discussion we were just having. <laughs> Sunday, bloody Sunday. <laughs> you know the story behind that deal, right? That's the that's about the the, the troubles. Right. In Ireland. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I still I think I talked about this before, still have a business relationship with the state of New Jersey. So the only one I have. Uh business relationship that is remaining from my company. And it was it was in a a side entity that was not part of my main company. And to do business with the state of New Jersey, you have to sign this document every year that, that is entitled the McBride Principles Law or Act or something. And it has to do with you disclosing that you're not involved with the IRA. <laughs> you have to assert, no, I, I'm not involved in, isn't that what it's called, the IRA? Yeah. I think so, yeah. It stands for Ireland, Irish, I don't know what the heck, but it's... Irish to, Revolutionary Army? Something like that, yeah. You had to sign a document saying, no, I'm not involved in that. Who does business with New Jersey that comes from the IRA? I don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> you get back in time to... Prohibition era, and a little after that, there was a lot of involvement between the Troubles and the Mafia in New England. Okay. Unbelievable. <laughs> I wish uh, they had a law that said if you don't contribute income tax, in parentheses, then you don't contribute in a uh, vote, in parentheses. That just makes perfect sense to me, Zach and o- Oxford. You know, there are a lot of people that feel that way. You, if you uh, don't pay into the till there, you don't get to have a say. I, I'm i not... You know, you'd be immediately labeled a racist. I, it's up for discussion at a minimum. 
Right? Was there ever a time when you had to own land? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was the original way it that's was That's what set I thought. Up. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Uh, how does that not make sense? If I'm not mistaken, the original set of standards to become a voter was to be a white male landowner. Gotcha. Andy says, let's not give these weak Republicans a pass on this income tax. Get the leadership on the show and hold their feet to the fire until they give us an answer. Well, we had Trey Lamar on yesterday, and honestly, I could have asked him the question, but but I don't believe he's going to tell us. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Some of these discussions are held in confidence, and, and if you ever betray that confidence, you'll never have these discussions again. And you can't effectively govern without protection of those private conversations. As far as the committee votes, you know, I have mixed feelings about that as well. And I don't know that there ever was a vote, honestly. I don't know. Uh, but that's my understanding. And again, I, I don't have anything official to base that on. It's just my understanding. But I will say this, Andy, I hear you. And uh, I, I'm going to do what I can to find out uh, who are not on board here and see, and not that I want to expose them as much as I am, I, I do just want to talk to them. What, what's the problem with this? I want to understand. What are they thinking? I don't want to just jump to a conclusion and say, you're just wrong, you're dumb, you're stupid because you don't support this. I, it's just not the way um, that I personally like to, to function on, on controversial matters like this. I want to know, what are, what are you thinking here? What, what uh, causes you concern? Uh, something else Mo says, excuse me, we retirees pay plenty of land and school taxes and we turn out to vote. Uh, yeah, we're, t- we're talking about, I don't know that uh, uh, Zach was talking so much about state income taxes, Moe, as he was federal income taxes. I'm, I'm guessing here. I really don't know. But land and school taxes, that as- assumes you own property. There are a lot of folks, you would have to agree, Mose, that are exempt from federal, uh, pardon me, state income tax because it is retirement income that do not own land. Don't Therefore, don't pay property taxes. They do pay sales taxes, and that is a major part of funding of uh, the state government's general fund. So on that basis, uh, I certainly would think that would qualify you to vote. It's based on what, um, who, who was it earlier, Zach, I think, suggestion. But I think he's talking about federal. So there are no federal sales taxes, Mose, but there, it, the states are different. But there is an income tax, and as you well know, we've discussed it on the program, half the country don't pay any income taxes. I think that's a problem. They have zero skin in the game. Now, what they will tell you is kind of what you're saying, Mose, and I'm, I'm not trying to put you in that same category, but I've seen this argued. They're entitled to Medicaid because they pay sales taxes. Well, that doesn't fund the 90% of Medicaid expansion. That comes from the federal government. You're not paying squat into that. Zero. So that's not a valid argument, in my view. I pay federal taxes every year. I'm sure you do, most. Uh, I agree. And therefore, you should have the right to vote. So I'm not arguing with you there, my man, um, at all. I hear what you're saying. And I don't think that's what Zach's suggesting. You've got skin in the game. We get that. Therefore, in my view, you're entitled to have a say. I think what Zach's saying is, no skin in the game. I don't know if you should have a say. That's legitimate debatable issue for sure but we are out of here today we appreciate you so much for joining us back in the 
Element Well Studios tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.